have your Bible, let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 12. This is the portion of the service where I speak and you listen. If you finish before I do, wait patiently and I'll catch up. Romans chapter 12, let's look at the uh, first eight verses together. Paul says, therefore, remember therefore is connecting you back to the first 11 chapters of this book. And Paul has been talking about the mercies of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given to you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his, his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So Paul starts out in this chapter as we're transitioning and doing a little mini-series within this series called Grit by Grace on your unique purpose. That is, God has uniquely gifted you and designed you for a specific reason. There's something that God wants to orchestrate inside of you and work through you so that you might um, impact the lives of other people. This chapter is all about relationships. Uh, he starts off by talking about how we relate to God, how we relate to the world around us, how we are to relate to one another, how we are to relate to unbelievers. And he, he ties this all up in the bow of love. This is what love looks like. This is what love does. This is how love expresses itself. So if I say to God, I love you, Father, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what? You will obey my commands. You will follow me. You know, a, a disciple is someone who follows Christ. It's not someone who is stagnant, but someone who is always moving in conjunction with Jesus. And therefore, Jesus said to his own disciples, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I'm going to enable you to become what you are not presently so that you might impact my kingdom. And therefore, God has uniquely designed each of us to make a contribution to the kingdom of God in this world in which we now live. Now, the parable that Jesus gave was called the parable of uh, the sower, and it talked about this person sowing seed, which was the word of God, and it fell on four different kinds of soil. The third soil that he talked about was a soil that um, the seed fell, and it began to germinate a little bit, and all of a sudden, this person was so wrapped up in the worries and the cares and the pleasures of the world that... They just walked away, right? There was no spiritual fruit that was the product of their lives. He said out of the four soils, only one soil, the good soil, actually produced fruitfulness. And so what is it that keeps us from offering our bodies up as living sacrifices to God in our walk with him? Now, we may say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally committed to God, but how committed are we? I think most of us will make a contribution to God, but we're not really sold out. We're not really surrendered because this is a lordship issue. That is, we receive Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. It's not one or the other. It is both and. To receive him as Lord is to surrender all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your desires over to him because you want him to fulfill his good, perfect, and pleasing will in you and through you. Amen? So that's our desire as followers of Jesus, but it requires something of us. It requires a heart of surrender. But the natural bent of our heart is not that way. 
the natural bent of our heart is to live for self, which is the essence of sin. We are living in a culture right now that is rising rapidly in, in narcissistic behaviors. Everybody's about themselves and what's in it for them and, and how they want to do it. And so we, we come into the world kind of bent towards, well, I just want to be happy in life. Everybody just wants to be happy in life. How do we define that? How do we define happiness? Where do we find happiness? How does God define it? Is it the same as what we, we think it is? Because we chase after a lot of things that seek to make us happy in life. And certainly God wants us to be happy, but oftentimes we so chase after happiness that we change God's role in our lives. Rather than we serving him, he now serves us. And that's a terrible way to transition in your spiritual walk with God because the implications of that theology, and I hear it all the time, people say, well, I tried religion, it didn't work for me. Or, yeah, you know, I went to church and it didn't make any, my life any better. Or, God didn't help me have a better life, therefore, uh, I don't even think I, I believe him anymore. And, you know, he failed me and I'm, it's just not real. Either way, I'm not interested. And so virtually every message we receive from society is all about how do we find, how do we acquire happiness in life? You listen to a podcast, you listen to the radio, you pick up a magazine, you, you go through your news feed, the advertisements, everything is focused on if you have this, you will be happy. If you go here, you will be happy. And it's always chasing what we don't have rather than being thankful for what we do have. And so pursuing happiness seems like the right thing to do. Because after all, if we're happy, that means that everything is going right for us in life. How often is everything in your life going right for you? Not very often. It, you, might, you might keep that for a nanosecond, but it's, it's going to be short-lived. And the Proverbs writer reminds us that not everything that we strive for, there is a, there is a way that seems right to us. But in the end, it leads to death. And so one of Satan's um, strategies is to keep us so wrapped up in chasing something other than the kingdom that we no longer have time for kingdom purposes or kingdom work. So let's kind of unpack a little bit about how that all works out. Um, you know, if God, people say, well, I just want to be happy, and so we chase after things that are pleasurable in the short term, but it's really not, um, it's not going to give us what we want in the long term. So here's my equation. You can jot this down. I didn't put it on your outline. Maybe I should have. And it's simply this. Better possessions plus peaceful circumstances plus thrilling experiences plus right relationships plus the perfect appearance, appearance equals happiness. Is that not the message of our culture? Well, sure it is. This is what Satan wants us chasing after all of our lives. And even though we may deny it with our mouths, the way that we spend our time, money, and thoughts leaves little doubt as to what it is we are chasing after. Think about peaceful circumstances. Oftentimes, for example, a college student gets a hard class and they just drop the class because they don't want to be committed to the class. Or somebody you know, gets a job they don't like, or a boss they don't like, or a salary, or a co-worker they don't like. They just want to hurry up and move on. You know, we, we look for things in the world provide us happiness that are really counterfeit, um, counterfeit experiences that we have. For example, I was shopping the other day, and I thought, you know, I, I saw this, uh, like a container, eight ounces of crab meat for $4.99. I thought, man, that is a deal, because crab is like, you know, off the charts price-wise, and, of course, I pick it up, and it's what? Imitation crab meat, right? Bummer. Uh, my happiness went right out the roof. But I want you to think about something. Um, the comfort of the Holy Spirit sometimes makes us extremely uncomfortable. Remember, we want peaceful, peaceful circumstances, right? Well, the Holy Spirit may make you totally uncomfortable. He may want to stretch your faith. He may want you to move outside your limitations and your self-imposed boundaries. We are to challenged to pray things like, God, 
mold me, shape me, break me. You're the potter, I'm the clay. And I can assure you when the potter is molding and shaping and fashioning the clay, it is anything but pleasant. It's anything but comfortable. And so sometimes we're asking God for things that he does not want to bring because he has a greater agenda in mind for you and for me and for the kingdom. God, yes, he doesn't want us to be happy. What he does want is for us to be blessed. They're not one and the same. God wants us to be blessed. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. In other words, only as we seek God in his kingdom over the empty and hollow things of this world can we experience this lasting blessing that God wants us to experience. And the way that we find that is through offering our bodies as living sacrifices. This isn't a one-time event. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross daily. The cross is an instrument of death. It is death to self. In other words, I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice. Why? Because it's my spiritual act of worship so that I might know what the good, pleasing, and acceptable will of God is. So if I start my day by offering myself over to God, asking the Holy Spirit to direct my mind, my heart, and my life, and as I'm interacting with people, whether at your job or in your neighborhood or in your school, you are opening up yourself to allowing the Holy Spirit to use you in ways to influence and impact the hearts and the lives of people around you. And when you do that and you're walking in God's will, then you are glorifying God through your obedience, which is your spiritual act of worship. And God says... I'm keeping track of that. One day you will be awarded, rewarded for all that you have done. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And, and Jesus talked about this. Apostle Paul talked about this. God doesn't want us just to be happy. He wants us to be blessed. So I don't know about you, probably the same for all of us. When I met Christ, God did a radical work inside of my heart. Now, um, I discovered some things that I never knew about myself. Like, there are a lot of sin in my life that I didn't really consider sin before I got saved. Right? All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shines his light inside of you, and, and he begins to ex expose some things. And so the frustration was, well, I, I could overcome some things pretty quickly, but other things I just seemed to struggle with on and on. So I took the salad bar approach to God's Word, and where the commands were of God were, and if I liked them, and I thought they were reasonable, then I would obey them. But if I didn't like them and thought they were unreasonable, then I chose not to obey them. Well, what happens at the end of the day? At the end of the day, because I violated my conscience so often, then I'm filled with shame and guilt. And, of course, Satan comes in, and he starts hammering away at you. You're a horrible person. I don't know how God loves you, puts up with you. I don't even know why he, he uh, and, you know, pulled you into his family. You, you are worthless. And we begin carrying all of that self-condemnation around with the guilt and shame. And what, so I had to ask myself the question, what is it that God wants from me? If we're not careful, we spend our entire lives trying to earn God's love. We try to earn his favor. We try to earn his acceptance. And that's not at all what Paul is asking us to do. That's not at all what God's asking us to do. What God is simply asking you and I to do is to trust him. To trust him in all things. Remember, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works in all things to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's all things. Those are painful things. They're mountaintop experiences. They're deep, dark valleys. They're everything in between. And so sometimes walking with the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is going to have us extremely uncomfortable as we take this journey with God. And God is saying, in essence, listen, in light of my mercy, 
Greg, if I loved you enough to allow my son to die in your place so that you might experience the forgiveness of your sins and a new life in Christ, a new creation in Christ, a part of my, my family and my eternal home, don't you think you can trust me because I have your best interest in mind? It may not look like it. It may not appear like it. But I'm telling you, I'm, doing all, I'm working all things in you so that I can work through you in order to expand the kingdom of God. So listen, it doesn't matter what your job is. Your job's your mission field. Your neighborhood's your mission field. Your school is your mission field. So the question is, how can we, out of gratitude, and it's so important that we are grateful to God for these things every day because I've discovered in my own life that whatever you Forget to become grateful for, you take for granted, and the things you take from, for granted, you just become complacent with. And so it's so easy for us to get so wrapped up, and here's where Paul is taking us, it's so easy to get so wrapped up in our lives, we forget our assignment. We forget what God has designed us to be and to do. And so it all just kind of gets put on the back burner of our lives. And once in a while, we'll pull it in. But all of a sudden, this relationship, this walk with God begins to take a shift. I don't know about you, but there have been two funerals. Uh, Greg uh, conducted the funeral for his mother uh, this past week, my son-in-law for his aunt. And uh, was part of that, that funeral. I don't know about you, but when my funeral time comes, I don't want people to have to stand up and lie. Right? I, I, want, I think in terms of what are the stories I want to be able to tell my grandchildren and children and grandchildren, and what are the stories I want told about me when I draw my last breath? So that we keep in mind every day it's, it's, a, it's a time of surrender. So here's the big idea for today. Total commitment is the channel through which God's best and biggest fl blessings flow. In other words, when we, we come to the Lord and we climb up on the altar and we die to our wants and our desires and our dreams, we do so because we want, we want to be maximized for God's purpose as living sacrifices. So we're answering three big questions that everyone must answer, and they're on your outline. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what am I supposed to be doing? And so I'm just going to hit the first two really briefly. Uh, we're going to... Anchor in on number three, all right? You can, go, you can go back and listen to last week's message where I anchored in on the first two. Who am I? This is your identity. This is your identity in Christ. This is the mercy of God on our lives. Remember what happened when we gave our life to Jesus? We were placed into Christ and he was in us. And every spiritual blessing that God has for us is found in Christ. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God blessed you He's, he's made you strong. He's made you alive. He's made you a new creation in Christ. I've given you 30 days of what happened to you the moment you put your life in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes your identity. Do not root your identity in your past hurts and failures. You keep your identity rooted in Christ. God took care of your past hurts and failures, you may need to heal from them, but he's taken care of them. You are now a new creation in Christ. So the principle that we looked at is simply this, what God made me to be determines what he intends for me to do. You're a new creation in Christ. I hear people all the time, well, I don't think God can use me. I'm just, you know, a, a, you know poor, lowly person. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. I don't have any abilities. You know, I, I'm limited in strength, and I'm limited in this and that and the other, and we focus on our limitations, and we forget about who we've become in Jesus. Listen, God, if you're still drawing breath on this earth, God still intends to use you in his kingdom work. Number two, who, where do I belong? This is all about security. Paul says, listen, don't think too high of yourself. Don't think too lowly of yourself. But I want, you, I want you rooted and your security put in in the fact that you are now have been transferred 
from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sin. Now, we all like to find security and identity in something, right? Uh, you know, sometimes we, we, we want to identify with our favorite football team or hockey team or basketball or baseball team. So we wear jerseys and we have names on the back of those jerseys of players that we like and we admire. And sometimes you wear certain clothes because you want, you know, you want the, the designer clothes or whatever it is. But Paul says, listen, let's take a break. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's take a break from building our security and our values around those things. Let's not build them around the world's values, but let's build it around the fact of the values of the kingdom of God. God has given us the mind of Christ. He is developing within us the character of Christ called the fruit of the Spirit so that we can live the life of Christ, so that we can continue the mission that Jesus began on planet earth, the mission he said to us, listen, I'm about to leave you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm passing it on to you. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, and therefore now go and make disciples. As you are going, make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have taught you. In other words, multiply yourself. Invest in somebody's life. What God has done in you, now take it and invest it in somebody else's life around you. You know, the culture promises a lot of things. But what it's resulted in is an unprecedented divorce rate, financial collapse, disenfranchised children, and a widespread depression in our day and time. So Paul says, listen, I have... God has linked us into the body of Christ. The moment you gave your life to Christ, God, Jesus says you were baptized into me through the person of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected. You are part of the body of Christ universally, and you're part of the body of Christ locally. And he says we are all interdependent upon one another. In other words, you have a very unique and valuable function in the body of Christ. You know in your human body, if something stops working, it weakens your body. All right? So the same thing in the physical is true in the spiritual realm. When the body of Christ, the, the local church, God has shaped us uniquely designed us, we're interdependent upon one another. I need your gifts, you need my gifts, we need one another because this is the way God has designed it. If you're not functioning, then it weakens the body of Christ. And what it causes is that now other people in the church will have to pick up the load that you've let go of because you've decided not to serve. It is, it is designed and it is essential that you function in ministry in the body of Christ and you function in mission outside the walls of the church as we take the gospel into our community. God is always pursuing people and teaching and loving and healing and blessing and unburdening people and instructing people. And so we exercise our faith when it gets challenged and strengthened and stretched and expanded as we engage in ministry. Everybody knows in this church, we've sent hundreds and hundreds of people over the years out on mission trips. Everybody knows when you go out on the mission trip, you don't come back the same. All of a sudden, God, through his spirit, tweaks something inside of you, and it, all of a sudden, it, it dawns on you, you know what? God can use me. He can use me exponentially if I only will be willing to surrender my body to him as a living sacrifice. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we want to discover, develop, and deploy your unique shape. Your unique shape. Why is it important that you walk in your unique shape, not somebody else's, in yours? You remember when David was, came on the, uh, on the scene when Goliath was standing, the big Philistine warrior, and he was taunting the armies of Israel who were sitting on the mountainsides, quaking in their boots because nobody wanted to take him on. David comes on the scene. Now David is 16 years old, 17 years old, pimple-faced shepherd, 
And here's this big, rugged warrior, Goliath, who is like a giant, is there taunting. And David says, listen, how dare he defy the name of the living God? I'll take him on. You know what King Saul did? The very first thing King Saul did says, well, if you're going to go out there, brother, I'm going to give you my armor. And Saul put his armor on David, but it didn't fit right, and it was uncomfortable, and it was too cumbersome. And David says, I can't function this way. I can't operate with this on me. So he took it off, and he took his staff, and he took five smooth stones, and he took a sling, and he went out onto the battlefield and he took on Goliath and he slayed the giant. So what is the lesson that God is trying to teach us? What others, what might fit others doesn't fit you. God didn't make us cookie cutter, right? That's why you have a unique shape. God's giving you certain gifts and talents and abilities and passions and experiences because he needs you fitted perfectly into the body of Christ and into the mission that he is sending you on when you leave this building. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God. This building just kind of houses the church as we gather together. And so collectively, we are a very powerful force. So you want to examine your own gifts and strengths. And so we're going to talk a minute about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are something God gives to you through the Holy Spirit. It is a divine enablement for you to operate in a supernatural way. All right, so it is the Holy Spirit who determines what gift or gifts you receive. Rarely do you only have one. Most of you have more than one gift. And you're going to notice as we go through the gifts, we're not going through all of them today. We're only going to hit seven of them. Uh, there are 20. So as, as is that oftentimes... We're talking about the motivational gifts, that you probably have one of these motivational gifts, and oftentimes God links to that giftedness another gift that enhances that gift or complements it in some way. And I'll give you a couple examples as we, as we go through them. And so oftentimes, like I shared last week, I had no idea about spiritual gifts, didn't know what they were, didn't know I had one, and so my spiritual gifts, what? They, they lay dormant. I'd never heard teachings on them. I'd never heard anybody describe them. And then, you know, I heard arguments about them. And uh, is this gift for today? Is it not for today? And so on and so forth. But when I began to discover about spiritual giftedness and how God has gifted me and how God has gifted you, once you have a grasp of that and an understanding, then you understand why you are... Um, you have a passion for certain things and why you do certain things in a certain way. In fact, um, I'm going to share with you each, with each of these gifts some characteristics and dangers. Now, if you took our class 101, I mean 301 on discovering my ministry, I go much deeper. I show you the strengths, the weaknesses, how you are misunderstood, how Satan attacks that gift. Do you know that a lot of times when people in churches get into arguments, uh, it's gift clashing. It's not because you don't like each other. And so we'll point some of that out as we, as we go along. But it's very important that we exercise our giftedness. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that other people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I want you to understand, what is your gift? How has God wired you? What are you passionate about? Here's two things that will happen if you operate in your giftedness. Fruitfulness and fulfillment. You see, if you're trying to be like David with Saul's armor on and you're not operating in your giftedness, you're going to lack those two things. You're not going to feel fulfilled and you're not going to see much fruitfulness as the result of your ministry. You'll see those two things as you are functioning. Now, I will say this. There are times when you're not operating in your giftedness because there is a need in the church, in the body of Christ, and you say, you know what, this isn't my passion, it's not really what I'm gifted for, but I will jump in and help temporarily until we can find somebody else to take this over. It happens all the time. So let's look at these motivational gifts. In your bulletin, uh, I've given you the, the four passages that describe the spiritual gifts. Again, if you took the list, there's about 20 of them. Now, there are different ways people uh, break up the list. Some say, well, these are speaking gifts, service gifts, and sign gifts. Uh, I use based on 
uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God who works all, all of them and all men. And so he uses the word gifts. These are the motivational gifts in Romans 12. Charismata, gifts of grace. There is service gifts, ministry gifts, diakonon, which is which we, we get our word deacon or waiter of tables. Um, and then the gift of workings, or uh, you can put out there, I, I didn't put it on there, manifestation gifts that are found in 1 Corinthians 12. So here's the definition of a gift. It's a supernatural enablement given by the Holy Spirit to every believer at their conversion to be used to minister to others and therefore build up the body of Christ. So as I go through these gifts, I just want you to think about, as I kind of give you descriptions and uh, characteristics, well, is this me? Is, is, you know, maybe I have this gift, maybe I don't. You might just put beside it, well, maybe I have it, definite no, or definite yes. So here's how I define the gift of prophecy or preaching. Some people uh, use that. The divine enablement to proclaim God's truth with power and clarity in a timely and culturally sensitive fashion for correction, repentance, and, or edification. The ability to real, reveal God's word accurately. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets did to what? They prophesied by, about the future, yes, but they also prophesied about present events in their day and time. They did both, and some of them had both contained within the prophecy for the present moment and for the future. And so when we think about prophecy, I want to just say this about all these gifts. If you say, well, if this is my giftedness, I don't like that gift. <laughs> How do I use that gift? Listen. There's not one ministry that's for each gift. There are, are, there are literally dozens of ways that each giftedness, gifting, can be used in the body of Christ for the edification of the body of Christ and for the furtherance of God's kingdom. So don't think about that right now. We'll get to that later. But people with this gift tend to ask, what went wrong? What caused this? So characteristic-wise, these tend to be uh, persuasive speakers, right? They, they like large groups. They don't work well with people one-on-one, -on -one, right? Uh, to give you an example, because prophets see in black and white, okay, and they're not real patient with people. It's like, hey, here's your problem. Get it right and move on. So uh, that can be kind of offensive, right? Here's what's wrong with you. Here's the sin in your life, because oftentimes this gift is also gifted with the gift of discernment, which means the gift of discernment, they can see things in people that you've never told anybody or nobody else can see it, but they can see it, right? And they may confront you with that sin issue, and you're probably not going to be real appreciative of that, at least up front. But they really love you, and they have, they have you, your best interest in mind. But they can be because they kind of can be a, a, a bit gruff, um, they can be misunderstood, which is one of their dangers. Uh, depending upon um, their speaking ability, one of the dangers is they tend to rely upon their speaking ability power than, than, than the Holy Spirit. But again, they, they appear to be insensitive to the feelings of others. I'll give you a biblical example. Remember, Na Naaman was uh, back in Second uh, Kings chapter 5. You can read about this story. He was the commander of the army of, of er King Aram, of the of Damascus, and he had leprosy. And you recall that he was sent to see Elisha, a prophet of God, in Israel. Elisha was in Samaria. So Naaman brings his entourage with him, and he goes to Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends a messenger out to Naaman, and he says, hey, if you'll go to the Jordan River, dip in the river seven times, You'll be healed. And the Bible says that Naaman was furious at Elisha. How dare he not even come out of his house and greet me? Well, we got rivers in our own homeland that are far superior to the, um, the Jordan River. Now, did Elisha come out and say, oh, I'm so, so sorry I offended you? Uh, no. <laughs> Elisha's like, look, you either go and dip or you don't. If you don't, you're going to die of leprosy. If you do, you'll be healed. And Naaman finally goes, because he was coerced by his own soldiers, hey, if, if the king said go here or there, would you not do it? 
So Naaman finally goes and he dips in the Jordan River and he comes up the seventh time, time and he is, he is absolutely cleansed of all of his leprosy. So if somebody has the gift of prophecy, um, typically, again, they're going to confront sin. And they're going to confront your sin, they're going to confront my sin. And they appear to be sometimes very harsh in their, in their confrontation. The gift of service, the divine enablement to attach spiritual value to the accomplishment of the physical task within the body of Christ. The ability to demonstrate love by meeting practical needs that relates to other Christians for direct spiritual ministry. People with this gift often ask, how can I help? So people with the, the gift of service, uh, these are the people who love to work behind the scenes. They don't want to really be in the limelight. They don't really need a lot of, uh, you know, accolades. They just see something that needs to be done, and they just do it. I mean, they, they just go after it. Uh, oftentimes, you don't even have to ask them. For example, if they're walking down the hallway in the church, and they saw a piece of paper in the hallway, 50 people may walk by that, but a person with a gift of service, they're going to stop and pick it up and throw it in the trash can. Right? Just, just what they do. They love to serve, and they look for ways to serve. And, and it, this might be a person who's been at your house before, and three months later, they bring you a gift. And you say, what's the gift? Well, you, you shared with me in a conversation about this and this, and I, I just felt like this could help you in, in, in your need. And so they, they give you this gift. That's just the way people with the gift of service operate. Um, for Like Jimmy, he's up here in, in the uh, crow's nest running sound. He has the gift of service. So uh, I was told this by his wife, so I'm going to rat him out. Uh, this week, so he, he I, most of you don't know, but maybe some of you, most of you know, he cuts the grass here during the summertime, and so he was out mowing, and uh, he was trying to mow a section of the, of the yard, and there was a little bird that was walking around, it wouldn't move, right, he, he wouldn't get out of his way, he didn't want to run over it, so he picks it up, and he moves it, gets on the mower, it comes back, he picks it up, moves it, gets on the mower, comes back, so finally he picks it up and put it in our mailbox, the only problem is he forgot he had put it in the mailbox. So when the mailman came the next day and opened the mailbox, the bird burst out of the mailbox, and the mailman says, I thought I was going to pee myself. I was so scared. So by the way, we had a couple of guys stop this week and jumped out of their car and grabbed our mail. So I'm going to fill it with birds and... Uh, See if that'll scare them. Now, the dangers of this, this gift is that um, sometimes they're the most neglected people in the church because they don't, again, they don't need a lot of encouragement. I mean, they want to be encouraged, but they know that they're, they're contributing to what's going on around here, but they just don't, they don't need a lot of pats on the back. They don't need somebody, you know, just propping them up all the time. They just do what they do. They just jump in. Another danger is, is an overemphasis on the practical needs at the exclusion of their spiritual needs and their spiritual walk with the Lord. Now, if you are a wife with a husband who has the gift of service, this is why you get so frustrated with him because he'll go out and he'll serve everybody else. Like, he'll go out here and fix this person's thing and fix this person's thing while your stuff, your honeydew list, never gets done. It doesn't get so frustrates you because he's out here doing everything for everybody else, but he won't do anything at home, right? You're like the last on the list, all right? The gift of teaching, the divine enablement to understand and give detailed ex explanation of biblical truth, the ability to search out and validate truth which has been presented. Um, people with this gift ask, what is truth? Where did you get that? Why? They're going to ask a lot of questions. Now, people with this gift love to do research, all right? They, they are the people... Uh, individuals who, like, they can spend hours on end studying God's Word. They love things like charts and, you know, just mapping out material. And uh, people with this gift will ask, you know, very detailed questions. And some of you, like, you have this gift and while I'm preaching, and, and you'll think to yourself, man, I want, could you stop? I got a question. You just stop preaching. I, I got a question to ask you. You need to fill in some details for it. See, it drives you crazy because you're it, you, you, you focus so much on the minute details of the Word of God, sometimes the danger is you forget the application. 
like you get so hung up on, well, why is this like this? And why is this like this? And you can spend hours researching some little thing that really is not going to make a hill of beans when push comes to shove, and you're going to totally miss the application of the whole passage. And so that's one of the dangers of, of the gift. And especially if you, like me, I'm a public speaker, I have the gift of teaching. The problem is we can get so hung up on the details of things that, um, yeah, that we, we, we give too much information, right? So you, you can't imagine, all right, when I write a sermon, it's like 25 pages long. I have to whittle that down to eight. So a lot of stuff goes on the cutting room floor, and that's very hard for a person with the gift of teaching, right? You want to give the whole shebang. Now, if I'm teaching college students, seminary students, different, different aspect, right? Like, they're going to get the whole shebang because they need to have it, but um, for our purposes, not so much. You're already going, come on, Gray, let's go. Exhortation, encouragement, the divine enablement to come alongside another in need of encouragement to reassure, strengthen, affirm, and challenge those who are discouraged or wavering in their faith. The ability to stimulate the faith in others. And so this person comes alongside others and brings comfort and wholeness to the situation. In other words, they're going to challenge you in your walk with the Lord. Okay? They, they see where you are. They, they, they empathize. Like, they're there with you. and They want to be an encouragement. But they're not going to let you stay stagnant. Like, they're going to help you move forward. My wife has this gift. Right? So women that she brings under her wing, uh, she's going to give them things like, she's going to give them books and podcasts, scripture, assignments, and she expects them to actually listen to the podcast, to read the scripture, to do the assignment, because if you don't, it's going to really frustrate her, right? Because her, her goal, her desire is that you, you don't remain stuck where you are. She wants to help move you forward in your walk, and your relationship with God, and what it is he wants to do. And so uh, she also has the gift of discernment, which means my wife has the ability to see through the fluff, right? She, she can see through things that uh, you probably don't want her to see through, uh, which is really hard to be married to. Uh, <laughs> no, babe, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking that. Yes, you were. No, I'm, so my wife has a motto. She's been sick for three weeks. And uh, she has a motto in our household that if something isn't working, I don't care if it's an appliance or a person, if it's not working within three days, it gets kicked to the curb. Okay, so my wife has been sick for three weeks and battling illness, been to the doctor, been off work some. And so the other night we were having dinner and I said, babe, you know, um, you remember your motto. Uh, you're not working you're not cleaning, you're not doing laundry, you're not contributing in any way, shape, or form, you're not going to the grocery store. Trash day's Wednesday, you got two days to get it together. <laughs> so that's a gift of mercy I don't have. I will not tell you what she said to me. It's not repeatable. So people with this gift, gift ask, what must I do to fix this? How can we move towards wholeness? So a characteristic is they, they're very long-fused people, loving, um, affirming. Their goal is to help you move forward. Um, but if you, having said that, if you refuse to move forward, they'll give you some time and some slack. But if you just refuse, then they're going to cut you loose. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm wasting my time here, right? So the danger is you can spend so much time with people um, who only want temporary solutions to their problems. And so, let's go to giving. The divine enablement to earn money, manage it well, wisely, contribute to the work of the Lord with cheerfulness and liberally, ability to entrust personal assets to others for the furtherance of their ministry. What can I give to meet the need? People with this gift, listen, like many of these gifts, we're all called to give, we're all called to serve, and these kinds of things. This is, remember, a supernatural divine enablement. People with the gift of giving doesn't mean that you necessarily make a lot of money, but people with this gift often do make a lot of money. But they're not making a lot of money for the purpose of just keep ratcheting up their lifestyle, but for the purpose of investing in the kingdom of God. They invest inordinate amounts of money into kingdom practices and ministries because that's just what God, how God has wired them. For example, Jason Day, who is a PGA Tour player, 
has Brighter Day Foundation. And he lives in uh, Westerville, he and his wife and children. And Brighter Day Foundation gives tons of money to the Stowe Mission, that is our mission here in our association that helps the homeless and the needy. And so every year, they, they give hundreds of thousands of dollars towards that, as well as many other things that they, uh, you know, believe in and are investing in because they believe that it, it is furthering the kingdom of God. That's a person with the gift of giving. And so let's, the, the gift of leadership, the divine enablement to see what needs to be done, set goals and attract and lead and motivate people to accomplish the work of the ministry, ability to coordinate activities of others for the achievement of a common goal. So that's the question, where is the goal? This is a person who's, these people are visionaries. And leaders tend to be um, a little more uh, personality-wise, like they're the cholerics, they're the lions, they're the, we're going to get her done. I, I got the big picture, and they get really frustrated if, if they're in an organization and, and it's stalled out, because like, I've got the big picture, this is how we can move it forward, and they'll gather the people around them and say, here's how we're going to do it. The problem with leadership is that they tend to hurt the feelings of people around them because they're so enamored and set on the goal that they tend not to be in tune with the, the feelings and the emotions of people around them. So they tend to bulldoze their way sometimes and leave a mess in their path. So here's what you need to do as a leader is you want to have somebody on your leadership team who has the gift of mercy who can come behind you and sweep up the mess you've left behind. That's how that works. And here's mercy, the divine enablement to minister cheerfully and appropriately to people who are suffering or undeserving and and to spare them from punishment or consequence, justly deserved, ability to identify with and comfort those who are in distress. How can I make you feel better? Now, my son-in-law has this gift, uh, Brian, and he had to do his aunt's funeral on Friday, and he did an incredible job. I was very proud of him. Um, but Brian is, is like, uh, like, he's just got the gift of mercy, and I mean, he, people with the gift of mercy cry a lot, okay? They just, they're just so emotionally in touch and in tune with people, and uh, it's one of the downfalls of the gift is that you can become depressed because you, you're so in tune with people's hurt and pain that you, begin, you take it on as, as though it were your own, and if you're not careful, you, be, you can become extremely depressed. And so after he finished the funeral, you know, he held it together pretty much through the funeral, but after it was over, I mean, he just, he just collapsed and just like just you know, melted um, because that's what the people with the gift of mercy do. They just, they're just in tune with the heart of other people. Now, the danger of this is that People with the gift of mercy have a difficult time being firm with people, all right? Like, if your parent has this gift, you love them because they have a hard time disciplining, right? They just, they just can't do it. Like, you, you, you make their heart melt, and so, especially among their own kids. And so, the other danger of this gift is people with the gift of mercy, if you're not careful, people will take advantage of you a lot because they know they can pull your heartstring. And that's all it's going to take, and boom, you're in there, you're going to do it for them, you're going to help them, you're going to see that it's done, so on and so forth. All right, so just ask yourself, this me, this not me, what is it? So why is all this important? So let me just give you this list, why this is important. Because the body of Christ is given gifts so that it builds up the body of Christ so that we can be strengthened. This is what ministry is built around, is the giftedness of God's people. The second reason is so that the lost can be, can be reached. It is a part of our mission outside of the walls. You know, people are lost. Jesus talked about hell 37 times. That's one message a month for the three years that he was in ministry. The New Testament talks about it 167 times. There is an actual place. Listen, we are living in a day of, we've talked about this, God's passive wrath as opposed to his active wrath. Passive wrath of God means that God just simply gives you over to what you want. That's how God is operating in our day and time. It's how he operated back in the book of Genesis before the flood. But then finally, passive wrath gives way to active wrath, and so God came in judgment against the world known as the world flood. We are living in a time where Jesus is going to come back known as the second coming, 
where God's passive wrath will come to an end and Jesus will bring God's active wrath and he will judge he will judge the world and the nations and the great white throne judgment will be conducted after his return and after his millennial reign here on earth. And so we have to be cognizant of that, that we are on the front line. We are the ones who carry the gospel. And so that's the third reason. The power of the gospel needs to be released. It is the message that God has given to us. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so we are to exercise the message and release the power of the Holy Spirit into the atmosphere in which we find ourselves with other people. And number four, so you can deepen your walk with Christ. As I mentioned, it's the method by which you grow. Show me a person who's not serving, I'll show you a person who's stagnant in their walk with God. It's just, you just are. But the more you serve, listen, you, you dive deeper in the Word, you dive deeper into prayer, you dive deeper into faith, and so God begins to grow and mold and shape you in the likeness of Christ. And so I close with this example. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus was about to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he sent a couple of disciples ahead, and he says, hey, I want you to go ahead of me, and I want you to go into town, and you're going to find a donkey and a colt that is tied up. I want you to untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, you're simply to respond, our Lord has need of these. And that's exactly what they did. I want to challenge you this week to think about your life and about your walk with God. Because Jesus is going to make another triumphal entry into this world known as the second coming of Christ. So my question, and I want you to ponder is, as we are preparing the way for that coming, what have you failed to untie that the Lord needs in order to further his kingdom? What are you hanging on to? What are you refusing to surrender into the hands of Jesus as a living sacrifice that God could use and leverage for his kingdom purposes in very powerful ways. What have you left tied up? What do you need to untie? Let's bow our heads together.